is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. What are you looking forward to? That's a fairly... uh self-explanatory question. What's coming up in the future that you are excited about or that you're looking and you're looking forward to being a part of that? I want to share mine with you. In the short term, I'm looking forward to this afternoon because I go home this afternoon and I get on my big chair and I watch a Western or a sci-fi and I'll have my computer in my lap and I'll be working on my email that I'll send to you all tomorrow morning. And, uh, and my wife says, why do you do that? And I said, because I find it relaxing. And uh, so that's what I'm looking forward to in the short term. In the medium short term, I'm looking forward to my summer vacation with my family uh, this July. I mean, it's the highlight of my year in so many ways. Uh, I spend a week with my three brothers, and then I spend a week with my extended family, my mom, my brothers, their families, and, and it's just a highlight of my year every year. I'm looking forward to that. And in the long, medium uh, term, I'm looking forward to retirement. <laughs> I'm a bit scared about it, right, you know? Uh, but I want to join the group of people that can say, you need to keep working so you can pay for my retirement <laughs> with Social Security, right, Siggy? That's, that's Siggy's favorite statement. Y'all keep working so you can pay my retirement, right? So uh, my Social Security. And in the long term, in the long term, I'm looking forward to what Isaiah speaks about in the next three or four chapters. I seriously am. I'm not just, that's not just preacher talk. I am so looking forward to what I'm going to share with you from the promises in the chapters uh, that follow the hard chapters that, that Micah preached on last week. It's actually kind of hard to tell whether chapter 24 goes with 13 through 23 or 24 goes with uh, 25 through 27. Um, I think it kind of follows the culmination of the book of woes really, really well that Micah spoke about last week. But some people think that chapter 24 is actually the judgment of Israel predicted or predicting the judgment of Israel in AD 70. Some people think that. I, I agree with the majority and with Micah last week when he said that 24 is kind of the culmination of the book of woes. It's, it's God's judgment on all the earth, not just on a specific nation. Chapter 24 is pointing us, I believe, to the last chapter of Isaiah. The last two chapters of Isaiah speak of God's destruction of the wicked eventually and the establishment of his forever kingdom. Okay, here's the last two verses of chapter 66 of Isaiah, the last two verses of Isaiah's book, say, all humanity will come to worship me from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, says the Lord. Then they will go out and they'll look on the corpses of the people who have rebelled against me, for their worm will not die and their fire will not be extinguished, and they will be an abhorrence to all mankind. I think that's going to be the fulfillment of actually chapter 24, when God judges the whole world and he slays all his enemies and their corpses will be eaten, eaten by maggots. Not a pretty picture, but their corpses will be eaten by maggots and destroyed by fire until nothing remains of them. The prophet Malachi said that they would be burned to ashes and that they would be stubble under the feet of those who get to be a part of God's kingdom. Again, not, not anything that anybody should gloat or rejoice over, but that's just what God says will be the future. 
Now, the judgment of all the earth will be complete and final when that happens. And in chapter 24, it even says that God's going to judge the angels at that time. So verse 21 says, The Lord will punish the rebellious angels of heaven on high and the kings of the earth on earth. I mean, such will God's judgment be, I, I think, complete and final. That's what 24 is pointing us to. And it ends with this. Chapter 24 ends with the Lord of armies reigning on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. And, and so with that, Isaiah, under the inspiration of God's spirit, turns his attention to the other side of that day of judgment, because there's another side of that day of judgment. And the other side of that day of judgment is going to be a day of praise, a day of joy, and a day of new beginnings. So chapter 25, verse 1. Lord, you are my God, and I will exalt you. I will give thanks to your name, for you have worked wonders, planned, formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. You are my God, Isaiah says, and I, think he's, and I don't think it's just Isaiah. I think that's, that's the cry of everyone after the judgment. You are my God. I will exalt you. I will give you thanks. Why? Look at the text. I'll give you thanks because the plans that God formed long ago they finally come to fruition. He's carried them out till their completion. Now, God, people speak of God micromanaging everything in the world, including the movement of dust mites. Uh, I don't believe that he does. And if you disagree with me, that's absolutely fine. But I don't think that he does. Um, I, I, don't think he, I, I think God has established a world that operates the way he established it to operate. And he's not micromanaging that necessarily. It's just, it's, it's playing out the way he's intended it to work. But I do believe this. I do believe that God has had a plan from the very beginning. He's had a plan from the very beginning. And from the creation of all things, before the foundation of the world was ever created, God says he had a plan where he was going to rescue us from death. And that, plan, and that plan is something that he has followed and worked uh, faithfully. I, I wrote in my notes, he planned his work and he worked his plan. And his plan was to establish this kingdom of Jesus, whereby the death of Jesus and the rising of Jesus and by our faith in Jesus and the return of Jesus, he would rule over us and reign over us forever in this kingdom, never to have an end. Isaiah continues and speaks of God destroying the wicked throughout chapters 25, 26, and 27. But he also speaks of, of being a stronghold to the poor in distress and a refuge from the storm. He subdued and silenced the wicked, Isaiah says. But interspersed with all of this, God's destruction, are these promises of God of what's to come. These promises of things that you and I can look forward to. These promises of things that are for the faithful. And so this morning, what I want to do for the next few moments is I want to tell you what I'm looking forward to in the future, the things that Isaiah is going to lay out for us here. And again, I want to reiterate this. I, I, this is not preacher talk. These are the things that Jimmy, Jimmy is absolutely looking forward to. And I have a reason to look forward to. I'm looking forward to the banquet. I'm looking forward to the banquet. Look at chapter 25, verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of armies will prepare for all the peoples a feast of choice meat, a feast with aged wine, 
prime cuts of choice meat, fine vintage wine. God says that there's coming a day when he's going to provide a banquet for us, for his people, of the finest meats and the finest wines. I tell you, I'm not much of a wine connoisseur. In fact, most of it tastes pretty gross to me. But every once in a while, somebody will say, try this one and it'll taste all right. But boy, on that day, it's going to be the finest wines and the finest meats. Jesus spoke of this banquet. I think he spoke of it pretty regularly. I want you to note this one in Luke chapter 14. If you want to follow along or just listen. But in Luke 14, 6, Jesus speaks of a banquet. This is what he says. He told them a man was given a large banquet and invited many. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who were invited, come, because everything is now ready. But without exception, they all began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I've bought a field and I must go, go out and see it. I ask you to excuse me. But that's an excuse. Who buys a field without looking at it first? I mean, I guess it does happen. Verse 19, he says, another said to him, I bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to go try them out. I ask you to excuse me. That's definitely an excuse. Nobody buys a used car without trying it out, right? He goes on and another said, I just got married and therefore I'm unable to come. Maybe that's a legitimate excuse. So the servant came back and reported these things to the master. Then in anger, the master of the house told the servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the cities and bring in here the poor, the maimed, the blind, the lame, all the people that you would think God doesn't care about. Invite them to come in. Master, the servant said, what you ordered has been done and there's still room. And the master told the servant, go out into the highways and the hedges and make them come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, not one of those people who were invited will enjoy my banquet. Here's what God says about that banquet in Isaiah 25. Jesus says this. He says, man, God's desires for that banquet to be filled with people. He wants people from everywhere to be a part of that banquet. And he's telling the Jews, and this is what Jesus is telling the Jews specifically in that particular instance. He's saying, listen, just because you're Jews doesn't mean you're going to be at that banquet. In fact, and maybe it's hyperbolic, I was, as I was going over my talk this morning and practicing, I, I had this thought, originally I said it's hyperbolic because there would be Jews that would be at the banquet. There will be Jews at the banquet, right? And it's hyperbolic. Um, but but maybe, maybe what he's saying is, Oh, I lost my train of thought. I didn't write it down. I can't remember what he showed me this morning, but maybe it was something else. But, but he's basically, Jesus is saying to the Jews, some Jews would be, so it's got to be hyperbolic at least, that most of you, or many of you, maybe most of you won't be there because you think you're going to be there because you're Jewish, but you're not there because you're Jewish. You're there because you respond to my offer. In Revelation 19, John writes, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. Most everyone believes that, that that's a reference to the banquet of Isaiah 25, the banquet of best meats and best wines. Now let me tell you what the banquet represents. It was customary when a king would take the reign that he would throw a banquet for his people. Now most likely he, he threw it just for the nobles and the, and the higher rankings of his, of his court, Right? But he would throw a banquet inaugurating his reign with joy. Today we celebrate just about every joyous occasion with a meal. If it's a 50th anniversary, we're going to have a meal. If it's a wedding, we're going to have a meal these days, right? Because why? Because food is associated with joy. And, and so the banquet at the beginning of Jesus' kingdom represents the fact that joy has come and that comfort has come. 
and, and that uh, provision from the Lord has come. I'm looking forward. I'm looking forward to the banquet because the banquet will mean that joy, that, that the kingdom of God has begun, that Jesus has returned, and that joy has come. I'm looking forward to the end of death. Look at verse 7. On this mountain, he will swallow up the burial shroud, the shroud over all the peoples, the, sh the sheet covering all the nations. What this means is in the day the Lord returns, death will be no more. You know, I just talked about the Shroud of Turin. The Shroud of Turin, people suggest, may be the burial cloth in which they buried, the shroud in which they buried Jesus. This is what, this is what Isaiah is alluding to when he says that he'll swallow up the burial cloth. It's what Paul alludes to in the chapter that Joe just read a minute ago, where at the very end he says, uh, then the saying will be written, well, then the saying that's written will be taken place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory, where death is your sting. The theme of that day, the theme of that day, the Lord's day, is that God's enemies will die, but also death will die on that day. There will be no more death. It'll be destroyed. It'll be gone. Eternal life will begin. And for, you know, maybe, maybe you think, well, no, no, Jimmy, eternal life is already going on. And, and maybe it is, but let me put it this way. Eternal embodied life will begin at that point. Never to lose our bodies again. Never to lose the embodiment of life as we know it now. In chapter 26, the next chapter, Isaiah continues with this thought. In verse 14, this is what he says. The dead do not live Departed spirits do not rise up. Indeed, you have punished and destroyed them. You have wiped out all memory of them. But then five verses later, God speaks to his people in verse 19. And this is what he says. Your dead will live. Your bodies will rise. Awake and sing, you who dwell in the dust. For you will be covered with the morning dew. And the earth will bring out the departed spirits. The wicked will be destroyed and not live, but that's not true with God's people. They will rise and they shall sing to their God with joy. And I tell you, I look forward, so forward to death being destroyed and never be. A few weeks ago, we funeralized Nancy's uh, middle son, Tim. And it was hard. It was hard on Nancy. It's hard on all of us who love Nancy. It was hard on, on me. Death rips us away from the ones we love. It takes them away from us. It removes their presence from us. It removes their affection. We can't hug them. We can't kiss them. We can't FaceTime them. We can't call them. It kills our relationship with them. And I look forward to the day when I will never, ever, ever be separated from you guys again. We shall never die again. And I look forward to that. I'm looking forward to the curse being lifted. Verse 8. Then he has, when he has swallowed up death once and for all, the Lord God will wipe away the tears from every face and remove his people's disgrace from the whole earth, for the Lord has spoken. Not only will death be removed, but the very curse that's on the earth will be removed. Death is going to be eradicated, destroyed, abolished. But God's going to also wipe away all of our tears. And he's going to abolish our disgrace. Do you see that in the verse? When Adam sinned, he brought death into the world. So all of us die as a consequence of Adam's sin. All of us die 
All of us can possibly die forever as a consequence of our own sin. How we define death is huge. A friend of mine was texting me this weekend and talking about how the statement, how we define death, determines what we think it means to live and what we think the book of Genesis means and all of that. And he's absolutely right. It makes a big difference how we define death. But, but I want to not focus on that for just a second. I want to focus on the other consequence of Adam's sin, which is that there's this curse that came upon the world. In Genesis 3.17, listen. The ground is cursed. This is God speaking to Adam. The ground is cursed because of you. Did you know the word ground there can actually be translated earth? At times it's, 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 it's translated earth depending on the context. And understand why they translated it ground here. But I think earth works just as good. The earth is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It'll produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground since you were taken from it. You, for you are dust and you will return to dust. What all God did in the curse, I, I don't know. But this is what I do believe. I do believe that tornadoes and hurricanes and wildfires and all the things that bring death and destruction on the earth, I think they're a part of the curse that Adam brought on the world. And in Romans chapter 8, 18, and I know I read this passage to you a lot because, I mean, it just, I'm looking forward to this. And so I read you this a lot, but in Romans 8, 18, it says, for I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was, subject, was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him, because of God who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. Let me interrupt the reading and just simply say, here's what that means. That means that God has subjected the world to decay because we're all decaying and dying. But one day, just like he's going to remove death and we'll never die again, he's going to remove the curse and he continues on. In the decay, he's going to remove that. Verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves, we have the Spirit as first fruits. We also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies, the resurrection of our lives. Because of Adam, we all sin. At least, I mean, we all die. At least once. Because of Adam's sin, God subjected all of nature to a corruption. Everything deteriorates. You know, last weekend we were at my mother-in-law's. It was her 94th birthday. And my mother-in-law, side of her, she has a little sunroom and with glass all in it. And this, to the side of it, she has a little rose garden. But she's 94 and things aren't the same as they used to be. And so she doesn't take care of her rose garden anymore. And so her rose garden doesn't look like a rose garden anymore. This looks like an overgrown, uncared for, fenced in area. Everything is deteriorating. Everything is running down, not getting better. It's, it's falling apart. 
But at the resurrection, at the return of Jesus and the resurrection, the curse will be lifted and our disgrace will be no more and the curse will be gone. And, and the Bible says God's going to wipe away all of our tears. So in the Revelation, the very last book of the Bible, God says this almost towards the very, very end. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. And don't you look forward to that? God is going to literally live with us. Jesus is going to live with us. We're going to see him and touch him and feel him and talk to him face to face like you and I talk now. That's what the revelation says. And they will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. I mean, I can't imagine this. Have you tried to imagine how the world can be changed? I mean, how, how, how can it be? How can it be that there's no more tornadoes and hurricanes that kill and destroy? How, how can that be? How's the world, what's the world going to be like? What's the world going to be like when, when we're all changed and it's different? It's just hard to imagine. But yet, I'm looking forward to the curse being lifted. I'm looking forward to it not being as it is now and being made like it God intended in the Garden of Eden. I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to the banquet. I'm looking forward to death being no more. I'm looking forward to the curse being lifted. But I'm looking forward to walking by sight. Today we walk by faith. I mean, we have this conviction and this assurance that what we hold to is true. But we walk by faith, not by our senses. We don't get to see it. We don't get to feel it. And it's just as real. I'm not trying to minimize the power of our faith. The Apostle Paul says, it's like we look through a dark glass. Have you ever had your sunglasses on and you forget you got your sunglasses on and it's getting dark and all of a sudden you realize you can't hardly see anything because there's not much light and there's sunglasses on and you take your sunglasses off and you're like, oh, wow, I see everything really, really clearly. Well, this is what he's saying. He's saying right now, it's like we're looking through this dark glass and we don't really understand how it's going to be when the curse is lifted. We don't know what it's going to look like or what it's going to be like in that time. But one day we're going to see face to face. And Isaiah says in chapter 25, verse 9, on that day it will be said, look, this is our God. We have waited for him and he has saved us. Look, we get to see him. This is our God. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let's rejoice and be glad in his salvation. I know I've told this story many times, forgive me. But when we brought Shep back and he got back from California and he's, we're seeing him for the first time at the funeral home and his friends have gone in there and I go in there to see him and I ask him if I can tell, I ask him if I can tell him about my hope and I put my hand on Shep's chest and I say, this is my hope. See, there's coming a day when God's going to put life back in my son. He's going to restore him to life. And I said, and he's, his chest, and I showed him, and I said, his chest is going to begin to heave with the, with the breath of life back in it. And I said, and he's going to open his eyes. And I said, and I said, by that time, I'll probably be dead. God will have to recreate me too, and I'll open my eyes. And I said, we'll see each other. We'll see each other. And we'll kiss each other. And we'll hug each other. But I told him this. I said, and in that moment, we will know. We will know by sight that our faith is, has been real, true. 
we'll, we'll walk by sight, not by faith in that moment. That's, that's what Isaiah is saying the people shout out on that day. We'll say, there's our God. We've waited for him. We see him. There he is. It's, it's real. And we will be glad and we will rejoice. I mean, if you think I'm minimizing faith, I don't mean to minimize faith. Remember Thomas? Remember Thomas? I'm not going to believe unless I see, unless I touch. And Jesus said, Thomas, blessed are those who will have faith. Blessed are those who are going to believe and not see. But I don't think Jesus is saying seeing's not important or seeing's not better. This week I talked to someone who's struggling in their relationship with Jesus. And someone I love dearly, and, uh, and they're struggling. And, uh, and, I, and I just kept, I, this was on my mind. And right now they're struggling, we're walking by faith. But I thought to myself, Lord, hasten the day so that my friend and me and all of us are not having to walk by faith anymore. We're walking by sight. We're walking because we're seeing you and hearing your voice and talking to you and just being there with you. Hasten the day. I'm looking forward to the eradication of all sin and evil. Verse 10. For the Lord's power will rest on this mountain, but Moab will be trampled in his place as straw is trampled in the dung pile. And he will spread out his arms in the middle of it as a swimmer spreads out his arms to swim. His pride will be brought low along with the trickery of his hands. The high-walled fortress will be brought down, thrown to the ground, to the dust. This is the last vignette in chapter 25. And, and I, I don't know that I'm right here, but I think I am. I, I think it's a picture of that day on the mountain that God's power will rest on the mountain and Moab is the illustration of God destroying all evil that's left. I, I, I believe that this is a picture of God removing all evil and wickedness from the world by his power. No more Russian despots. No more rapists. No more murderers or selfish people. But I want to say Jesus makes that change now. Jesus makes new men out of us now, new women out of us now. I mean, there's coming a day when he'll eradicate all evil. Imagine a world where there's no evil. But imagine God changing us and removing evil from us now and transforming us and making us righteous, good, godly, caring, loving men and women now because that's what the gospel does. That's what the good news is. That Jesus, by his spirit, comes into my life and he changes me. And he makes me different now. And he, and he changes the world now one person at a time. I listen to this podcast called The World and Everything in It every day. And on the weekend now, they have one called Effective Compassion. And I think I've actually recommended it to you. But this season is on the prison system. And, uh, and I'm, I'm telling you, I find it so insightful and so encouraging. I recommend it to you. It's on Saturdays it comes out. But um, in the story, they're talking about helping prisoners who come to Christ. Did you know that the rate of going back into prison within three years, I don't want, I'm probably going to get this wrong, but if I remember correctly, it's like 85% of people who go into prison within three years are back in it again. 
And, and when, what they found with people who come to Christ in prison is that they need discipling. And they're discipling each other in the prison. And some of these, I mean, on the story that I listened to just yesterday, one of the men who's come to Christ, he gets, he's in there for murder. He gets, he's going to make parole. He's meeting with the parole board. And he asked the parole board, he says, can you give me a hard release date one year from now, not now? And they're like, Why? He said, because I can't go into this one discipleship program that I want to go into unless I have a hard release date. I haven't been able to take this discipleship program. And he stays in prison an extra year so he can be discipled in this, in, by these men. And my point is this, the, the, the rate of going back into prison by these men who are being discipled through these ministries, it's like less than 10%, like 8% or 6%, from 80-some percent to like 6%. Why? Because Jesus wants to change our life now, everyone. That's what he's doing. It's not, it is all about the things that I'm looking forward to in the future, and I in no way want to take away from that. This is our hope. This is what we're looking forward to. But Jesus doesn't begin then. He begins now. He begins now to change me, to make me different, to make me the kind of person who impacts the world all around it. He wants to do that in your heart now, not just then. But then he's going to do it in this huge way. And before I share my last thing I'm looking forward to, I want to just talk on uh, chapters 26 and 27 for just a little bit. Most of chapter 26, part of I already read to you about the, the resurrection of God's people, reiterates God's destruction of the evil, talks about the establishment of his righteous kingdom on earth, but not yet, but not yet. Chapter 26 ends like this, verse 20, go to my people, enter your rooms and close your doors behind you, hide for a little while. Uh, until the wrath has passed. For look, the Lord is coming from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth will reveal the bloodshed on it and it will no longer conceal her slain. But not yet, not yet. It's been quite a few, it's been what, almost three millennia since Isaiah wrote those words. So it, we're still waiting, but not yet. Verse chapter 27 begins like this. In that day, the Lord with his relentless, large, strong sword will bring judgment on the Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent. He will slay the monster that is in the sea. The serpent or the, excuse me, the Leviathan or the serpent have long been symbolically representative of the adversary, of Satan, of the evil one. And here God says, on that day, on the day of the Lord's return, on the day when the Lord of armies comes to establish his kingdom, he will slay the dragon. He will slay him with his, what does he say? His large, strong sword. Let's see how biblical you are. Do you know what the sword of God is? What is the sword of God by which he'll slay the dragon? Anyone? Not a rhetorical question. Answer me if you know. The word of his mouth, right? The word of God. He's going to slay the enemy with the word of his mouth. That's exactly right. On that day, the Lord will plant a vineyard. Chapter 27, verse 2. He will atone for our sins and remove our iniquity when he destroys all false worship on that day. Verse 9. The atonement that Jesus accomplished for us. And it will be front and center on that day when Jesus returns. On that day, God the Creator will, listen to this, will not have compassion on the wicked or be gracious to, the love, to, to them. Verse 11. I mean, that's a hard verse to read, isn't it? Because God is compassionate, slow to anger. But in verse 11, it says the Creator will not have compassion on the wicked 
or be gracious to them. Verse 13, but he will gather his people to himself and they will worship the Lord at Jerusalem on the holy mountain. Verse 13, on that day, we're going to be gathered together to him, but he'll slay the wicked. And that brings me to the last thing I'm looking forward to. And I'm looking forward to the day of peace and security. Chapter 26, verse 1. On that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. Salvation is established as walls and ramparts. Open the gates so a righteous nation can come in, one that remains faithful. I think we're the righteous nation that's going to come in. Those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, those of us who have put our faith in God and loved him and served him and faithful to him, we're going to be the nation that's going to walk in through faith on that day. On that day, we will sing of the city of our God, where salvation has been established as our defense. The gates will be open. The faithful will enter in. Safety, security, peace will be ours. Verse 3, you will keep the mind that is dependent on you in perfect peace, for it is trusting in you. Trust in the Lord forever, because in the Lord, the Lord himself is an everlasting rock. I think three and four is a promise for us today that we can claim. I mean, I think I get to claim that today, that the mindset on Jesus, the mindset on God is, is one of peace. I mean, in the midst of all my turbulent troubles, I can have peace of heart because my trust is in him. But I also think verses three and four, verses one through four, are pointing to the day when we'll all live in perfect peace, trusting in the Lord. Remember Isaiah chapter two, on the mountain of the Lord in the coming day when the realized kingdom is about, here's what it said, they will beat their swords into plows and their spears into pruning knives. Nation will not take up the sword against nation and they will never again train for war. Jesus is the prince of peace, Isaiah chapter 9. He's the giver of peace. He's the promiser of peace. No more Russians in that day. No more Russians making war on the Ukrainians. No more Chinese threatening to take the Taiwanese. No more killings in Chicago. No more, no more vitriolic discussion over gun control. Won't be needed anymore. I'm looking forward to peace in the city. I'm looking forward to peace in the country. I'm looking forward to peace on earth. And so this morning, I want to invite you to this future. I want to invite you to be a part of this future that I'm looking forward to. I'm not inviting you to follow Jesus because you're scared of hell. I'm inviting you to follow Jesus because you want to receive this incredible gift of life in this kingdom that he wants to give you. I'm inviting you to a banquet in a world that's been transformed. I'm inviting you to live forever with the creator and with everyone else who has loved him and loved you. I'm inviting you to live by faith today one, one, and one day live by sight where you get to see him face to face. I'm inviting you to be a part of a world where there'll be no more evil, including your own evil. I'm inviting you, I'm inviting you to a world of peace where we sit around in the evenings around our little fires out in the backyard and we roast weenies and hot dogs and we have choice wine and choice meats. We have bonfires at night and we laugh together and we sing songs with the guitar 
and, and life is so filled with joy and peace. I'm inviting you to that. I'm inviting you. It kind of starts now. I mean, not in its total fulfillment, but it starts now for us. But I am inviting you to that world. I'm inviting you to be a part of that world. You say, well, Jimmy, how do I get to be a part of that world? I want that. How do I get to be a part of that world? Now listen, there's no way to enter this world that I'm giving to you based on the activity of your lives. It's not given out to you if you measure up. I mean, we're pretty all broken, right? I mean, every one of you is broken. I mean, you're really broken. And if we knew your brokenness, if you didn't hide your brokenness, if you didn't hide your brokenness from one another, we, you, know, you, you probably know we'd be all appalled, right? And I'm not just saying that. I'm talking about my own brokenness. I'm, I'm talking about your brokenness. But I'm talking about mine too. We're all broken. You don't, get there by, you don't get there by being less broken than somebody else. You don't get invited to this by that. Here's how you get, in, here's how you get to be a part of this. You believe the Creator. You believe the Creator when He says, I love you, and I want you to be a part of this. When you believe Him, and you put your trust in Him, and you put your faith in Him, so as to follow Him, so as to follow Him, when you trust Him so as to follow Him, then this is what He gives to us. This is what He gives to us. And so this morning, I want to invite you to Put your faith in him. I want to invite you to believe him in what I've shared. I, I get it. Two millennia and 800 years ago, Isaiah penned those, world, those words. 2,800 years ago. Okay, where, where's the promise of it, Jimmy? I mean, 2000, almost 3,000 years have come and gone. And there's, been, there's, there's no sign of that, is there? Where is it? I mean, that's what the scoffers say, right? So I know I'm asking you to take a leap of faith. I know I'm asking you to look through a dark glass right now, but I am asking you to put your faith in Jesus. And so if you're not here this morning in the room and you're watching us on live stream at some point, if I could just speak to you for a second, this is for you too, to put your faith in Jesus. But now I'm gonna go back to the room and I wanna say young people, is there any young person here this morning who wants to declare themselves for the first time or in some kind of clear and concise way that maybe you feel like in your heart you've never, I want to follow Jesus. I want to be a part of this kingdom. I want to be faithful to, to him. If that's you, would you just stand up? Just stand up. Don't be ashamed. Don't be scared. Is anybody here that that's you for the first time or so you want to just stand up and say, yes, I want to follow Jesus? I said young people. How about old people? Is there an old person here who wants to just stand up and say, that's me. I want to follow Jesus. Anybody in the room for the first time you want to do that? I realize I'm preaching to people who are already following Jesus. Did you make your way in here by some chance and that's not you and you want to? I'm so excited about the future. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at baconscastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing locally here in Surrey. Be blessed. Be blessed.